Well, it's a real privilege to be with you today, and um, especially um, privileged to, to start a new series. And uh, we, we do start series in, we have kind of series in our church, we've been doing a series on the, um, on the miraculous signs of John, and then over the summer, Bible Heroes, and, um, and then we've just started a series on discipleship, looking at the life of Peter. So um, I, I'm told that over the next seven Sundays, you're going to be doing a series on the, the letters, the seven letters to the churches of Revelation, which is a really, really kind of uh, exciting project. So, uh, and there are, in the midst of this mystic- mysterious book, um, which uh, you know, has caused so many people to, uh, to stress about what it all means and some of the deeper symbolism and things, uh, there are some very practical, down-to-earth uh, pieces of advice to us now, to the seven churches. Now, you could relate these simply to seven churches that existed 2,000 years ago. Or you could say, actually, all of these letters might have something to do with us. Now, the seven letters are very different, um, uh, and, and they're saying different things to each church. So my understanding is that they were specifically intended for those churches at that time, but uh, a lot of the things in these letters are equally relevant to us or could be equally relevant to us today. I know certainly all the churches that I've been part of, uh, many of these things are certainly um, relevant. So I wonder, have any of you been involved with appraisals in work? Yeah, one or two people. Has anyone been involved with Ofsted inspectors? Yeah, yeah. So... Um, We've all got kind of views on such things, and um, I think actually what we have here are seven appraisals of seven churches, and um, there are good and bad things in most of these uh, in most of these appraisals. Some of them have got more good and more more bad, and some uh, you know are kind of nothing particularly strongly said, but some of them have got some very strong praise and some very strong criticism. The first one and the last, particularly, have the strongest praise and the strongest criticism. Uh, I don't know what experiences you've had of appraisal, um, but, but when I was a student minister in a tiny little village in Northamptonshire, I, um, I made the mistake of asking my deacons to do an appraisal of me. And... Um, Well, put it like this, they weren't particularly well trained in doing appraisal. So, uh, but I thought, kind of made myself quite vulnerable and said, I want you to tell me how you think, you know, she's gone. And and, and they wrote this letter and they invited me around for dinner and then passed, it it was like saying, brother, I'm going to tell you this in love, you know? (laughs) And they, I opened the letter and read it in front of them. And, And basically the way it went was, it said, you're good at this, but... You're good at this. And the whole thing, just every positive point was kind of negated by a but. And it absolutely hit me for six. And um, um, I have to say that um, at my second church, I did the same thing, foolishly. And uh, a gentleman who was a, a head teacher of a school who understood how to do appraisals. And it was a very positive experience, I have to say. So, But maybe you've had those. And maybe if you're a teacher, you've had... Um, positive and negative experiences of uh, Ofsted. Um, I know my son-in-law was completely devastated by a very unfair criticism at the school at the time. Um, but at any rate, um, enough of that. Appraisal. 
What's the middle word in appraisal? Praise. Yeah, so at the centre of the word appraisal is the word praise, and so whenever you uh, actually are doing an appraisal, you should really predominantly be looking for the positive things to encourage people to develop. Now, they're always, always negative things. Nobody's perfect. And when you present presented as room, areas for improvement. So here are the things. We praise you for these things, but here is an area for improvement. So if we understand these letters in that light, um, I think um, you, you will see that the, these have got a lot to speak to us. So here we go. Um, the appraisal of the church at Ephesus... And each of these appraisals is mediated by an angel. You notice this? The angel, actually, the message is to the angel, and the angel mediates it to the church. So I think a wise mediator is always good in an appraisal. How do you put it over? Well, let's think about Church of Ephesus. Well, Ephesus is currently in Turkey. Has anyone been to Ephesus? Some of you have. It's got a fantastic Roman amphitheatre and... uh, it's, um, it was in Asia Minor, currently in the country called Turkey. Um, in its day, it was a major seaport. Um, but over the years, the, 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 the harbour has all silted up and, uh, and it can't be used as a seaport anymore. But in its day, um, for many centuries, it was a, a major seaport. It was also a major church for Paul. It was his headquarters for much of his time when he was writing the Corinthian letters. So, um, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians were written while Paul was staying in Ephesus. Um, In Acts 18, you can read about how he went there and he left Aquila and Priscilla, two of his very well-trusted disciples who were left there to look after the church. And then in Acts 19, Paul goes there himself and he meets some disciples who've been baptised, but they've only had the baptism of John and they haven't understood who the Holy Spirit is. And when Paul prays for them, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And um, he then stays there for two years teaching the church in Ephesus. So it's a very, very important church for Paul. It's a very, very important commercial uh, Roman centre. And so... um, it's, 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 a great, uh, it's a great city. However, um, not only are there, is it a great church, but it's also a place where Paul experienced many riots and uh, much violence and opposition to his teaching. Uh, usually they go together. Um, it's a bit like the bishop who said, that, you know, whenever Paul went anywhere, um, there was a riot. Whenever I go anywhere, I'm given a cup of tea. Uh, but Paul's experience was that when he spoke, his, his words had a, a reaction, uh, positive or negative. And uh, so this is the city in which Paul founded the church, uh, the Ephesian church. John, in his elderly vision and through the angel, uh, the first letter uh, of the seven goes to Ephesus. And indeed, it has much to praise the church at Ephesus. If you have a look at your Bibles, um, I kind of like a thing I say like an auto cue. Um, if you've got your Bibles there, please have them open because I want you to tell me if I'm telling you right. Okay, like I told you the wrong psalm. You should tell me if I get it wrong. Um, much praise for the Ephesian church. Um, your deeds. You've been doing a lot of good stuff in this church. You are a hard-working people. 
Well, that's good, isn't it? You know, a church that's doing good things, gets a good reputation in the community. Uh, doing good is, is part of what we are as a Christian church. Uh, I hope it is. Secondly, you can't tolerate the wicked men. And, you know, there's, there's the doing good, but there's also, what about the people who are doing bad things or teaching the wrong things? Uh, as well as doing good, we also need to do something about clearly where there is wickedness or evil. The church has to oppose that. And, and the church at Ephesus is commended for not tolerating the wicked people in their community. Uh, It's commended for testing the false apostles. You see, some apostles like Paul were preaching the true gospel, but some of them were changing the gospel and bringing something that was a different gospel. In fact, uh, as Paul says in Galatians, um, it's not even a gospel at all that they're preaching. It's not good news. Um, So the church at Ephesus had tested these people uh, and they'd found them to be false. And they'd said, this is the true gospel. What these people are preaching is false. And that's gone on right from the early days of the church, right until now. I expect, do you get knocks on your door from witnesses and in, in the village? You know, the, there are groups who are pro- pro- preaching a gospel which isn't the gospel. It's, it's a, 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 an altered gospel, and it's no longer good news. So we need to test the true from the false. You're a church who has persevered. Perseverance is such an important thing, isn't it? You know, there's too many fly-by-night people who want to just do something quick and make a quick buck and then disappear. You're a church who has persevered. Hardships uh, and the riots and things that Paul experienced were also experienced by the church. So uh, many of our brothers and sisters across the world uh, are enduring horrendous hardships right now. We're sitting in a nice, comfortable village hall. I know you've all been kicked out of your building because of a fire, um, but hey, you know, it's not hard, is it? And okay, for bringing all this stuff. And, but it, it's made it a bit inconvenient for you, but it's not exactly a hardship. But these people had experienced hardships for Jesus' name. So all that is commended. And he says, you've not grown weary. You've not grown weary. So, so far, the report sheet of the appraisal is all good. And then there's a yet. Yet. I hold this one thing against you. One negative. I wonder what that's going to be. You've forsaken your first love. That must have come like a Bolt out of the blue, mustn't it? You're doing all this fantastic work, but you've forsaken your first love. Now, appraisals are not meant to have surprises. If, if there is a negative thing, then it should probably have been picked up before in your normal kind of working practice. But I don't know to what extent this church had, but maybe they hadn't realized. No one had told them, but suddenly, here is Jesus himself speaking through the angel, saying, you've forsaken your first love. So when Paul uh, wrote from Ephesus to the church at Corinth, he writes these words, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm just like a a, a clanging cymbal or or a sounding gong. Even if I give my body to be burnt, but have not love, I am worth nothing. This is a really damning indictment, isn't it? For for a church to have forsaken their first love. Um, 
You see, the church at Corinth had all the the gifts, but no grace. The charismata. Uh, The charis is grace, martyr are the gifts. You know, the the, the gifts of God without the grace are worthless. You know, they must go together. So the church at Ephesus has great programs. It has impeccable doctrines. It has indefatigable workers. But it's lost its first love. What is that first love? Well, it doesn't actually tell us, does it? Well, it, that it was is or love for one another, and actually both of those go together. If it's a church that says we love Jesus, uh, and if it's a church that love one another, And then bless him, Peter. I, mean, I, I love Peter. He's kind of the man with the size. Every time he opens it, he puts his foot in it. And, but, you know, Peter makes a complete mess of things, doesn't he, after Jesus' crucifixion. He completely loses it, and he's totally devastated. And then Jesus meets him. Well, Jesus meets him privately. We're not told anything about that meeting, but we know that Jesus has met him privately. We can read that at the end of Luke's Gospel. And then he meets him in public on the seashore in, in, um, in Galilee. What does Jesus say to Peter? Does he say, now then, Peter, what did you do wrong? You know, what can you learn from your mistakes? Uh, if he were to do the same thing again, how would you improve your performance? Does he? Does he? Come on, tell me. He doesn't say that, does he? What does he say to Jesus? What does Jesus Do you love me? Three times. Do you love me? Actually, Pete, it doesn't matter that you've completely messed your life up. It doesn't matter that you, who boasted about being so good, have gone off the rails. What really matters now is not the past, but it is now. Do you love me? Last time, Peter's me, and eventually he settles for um, filio love. Do you do you love me in brotherly love, as opposed to the agape love that he is truly demanding? He settles for that. He takes whatever Peter can offer. There's only one question: Do you love me? Uh, the, the great, one of the greatest theologians of the last century was a man called Karl When Karl Barth, towards the end of his life, was asked by somebody, uh, sum up your theology in, in Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And that's from a theologian who's... to ask is, um, how can a church lose its first love? How can your church, my church, any church? Uh, Well, a few ideas. We can be absorbed by our programs. In other words, we can become so busy, think it's all about our programs. And there are some great programs, alpha courses and and all these kind of things, um, you know, 
open the book in schools and, and all these kind of things that we can be doing, which are great. But if we become a church... always meet at 6.15 because the train came in at 6.5 and um, the, the station's been closed for 50 years since Beecham um, but they still had a lot of uh, extra administration to do um, recently um, for various um, we can get buried under that kind of stuff I mean I, I, I sometimes really in emails and it's easily done uh, and there are important things that need to be done but uh, you know we can get stuck under the administration and forget what it's all about that it's about loving Jesus um, churches can become obsessed with doctrinal purity. Um, now, good, bi- good biblical teaching is vital for any church. Our teaching must be based on the scriptures and it must be uh, seeking the truth of God's word. We need to deal with heresy. If people come into our church and start saying things that aren't in line with the teachings of scripture, then we need to firmly but lovingly correct that. And sometimes, you know, that happens. Uh, and um, Paul uh, warned that actually after he left, when he left the Ephesian leaders in a very emotional departure, he said, beware, there will be wolves that come in among you. But they look like sheep. And they, they've got these fantastic new ideas. But actually, if you look underneath what they're trying to do, they are undermining the gospel. And we need to be aware of that. But we also need to avoid the inquisitional spirit that some churches have. You know, is that preacher sound? You know, and, well, I've had people in my time who think I'm far too liberal, and I've had other people who think I'm way too conservative. So I'm kind of, um, you know, you can never win, can you, actually? But we, we as a church need to be people who say, is it in line with the truth of Scripture? And do we love one another? Because the truth and love need to go together. But there are some churches that that narrow down, you know, if you come to this church, you've got to believe this and this and this and this and this and sign our declaration. Uh, And if you don't believe all these points, then you're not really truly saved, you know. Hey, so we can get, if you like, obsessed with doctrinal purity, but we should always be seeking the truth. And we should always be doing that uh, in love. So there are, I've given you four different ways. You can probably think of other ways in which churches can lose their first love. But here's the most important question. How can a church regain its first love once it's lost it? Well, first answer is try harder. I'm going to really try to love Jesus this week. You'll fail. You know, it doesn't work that way, does it? Actually, um, the idea of an appraisal is that it gives points of action for improvement. So this letter tells us 
what tells the church how they can go about regaining their first love. And it isn't try harder and hope you do better next time. It is this. One, remember. Remember the height from which you have fallen. So this is not the three R's, this is the two R's. Okay? Um, Remember the height from which you have fallen. Uh, When Paul writes to Timothy in his second letter, um, there's the verse that actually my pastor David Richardson um, preached on when I was inducted into my first church, and it was this, remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. Remember Jesus. Remember the height from which you were fallen. I was so lost, but you showed the way. I was lied to, but you told the truth. I was dying, but gave me life, we've been singing earlier on. Remember Jesus. And in fact, uh, if you ask the scholars, they will tell you that this word remember is in the present tense. So it means go on remembering. You know, not kind of just remember once and then forget it. Go on remembering day by day how much Jesus loves you. And as was quoted before, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, says Paul. And John, uh, the, the, the apostle who gets this vision in Revelation in his letter says, this is love, not that we love God, but that he first loved us. And the tradition of the early church fathers tell us that when John was a very old man and he couldn't walk, he was carried around in his chair. And wherever he went, he simply said, dear children, love one another. Number how, how many times John writes love one another in his letters. That was the most important thing uh, that, he, he, that we, we've learned. So remember where your source of love is. Remember where you've come from. And then repent. It's a word we don't like too much um, uh, in, in these days. Repent. You know, we get the um, image of the sandwich board people on the street. Repent for, you know, for the end is nigh. Um, And all too often we take repent as being a negative word, repenting from something. Actually, repent, uh, the word metanoia, means to turn round to face. In other words, it's not repenting from something, it's repenting to something. It's repenting, turn back to your first love. Um, You know, um, when, when you've been married 37 years, you don't actually feel the same every morning as you did when you woke up on your honeymoon morning. Well, you felt very tired there, actually. But, um, uh, you, you know, it, it, love, love isn't about feeling, is it? But actually, we do need to, every so often, it's good wedding anniversaries, to think about your vows and come back to the thing. Create what it was like when you were first a Christian. Uh, you, you were probably enthusiastic and rather kind of... Um, You know, you kept getting things wrong, like Peter. uh, And as you get older, you mature. uh, And there's a mature kind of love, but you do need to come back and remember the height from which you've fallen and to repent. Get your priorities right. To keep the main thing, the main thing. What is the main thing? The main thing is to love Jesus. Do you love me, says Jesus, three times to Peter. I wonder how many times he would say it to us. Do you love me? So that's... To, uh, the, the two R's. How do we regain our remember and repent? But as the letter comes to an end, there is a warning. If you don't repent, I will come and take your lampstand away. 
What does that mean? Well, if you look at the opening part of this letter, um, you will find that uh, the seven lampstands, if you look in... Uh, the, the, seven, the seven churches. Uh, words, the angel say, is told, I will, that Jesus will come and take away the church. So all you will be left with is a group of people who've got a fantastic program, amazing children's work, Superb sports ministries, you know, serving the elderly in the village um, and, uh, you know, singing nice songs and having nice teas, but they don't love Jesus. In other words, a church is people who love Jesus. Once the lampstand is taken away, you haven't got a church left. You have a social club. Um, So there's a strong warning. If you don't repent, if you don't come back to your first love, you won't be a church anymore. But there is some good news. And the good news is not in the Bible. It comes from uh, the second century, where one of the church fathers, Ignatius, uh, in his writings, early in the second century, writes this, that the church at Ephesus was a deservedly happy church, known for its good deeds and harmonious love under a man of inexpressible love, Bishop Onesimus. Isn't that but there we are, um, some years after this revelation, there is uh, the church which clearly has heeded this warning. Now, actually, that church ultimately did fail. But initially, it did heed the warning, and it was restored as a loving, harmonious, Jesus-loving church. I just wonder if Bishop Onesimus was the, the slave. I wonder. I wonder. I don't know. There's also an encouragement you know, it's always good to end on an encouragement. Although you've, you know, you've fallen on this bit, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. Well, we don't know much about the Nicolaitans. Um, it's suggested that they were named after Nicholas of Antioch, who was one of the seven deacons elected in Acts. Um, uh, but the word Nicolaitan is like the Hebrew Where people are commended uh, for not the Nicolaitans but the practices. Isn't that interesting? We're never told to hate, but never the people. So, how do you, you know? deal with people in love. And, and we're told, actually, in um, Jesus, in the only twice that he mentioned I will build my church and, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then he says, in the church, if a brother sins, what do you do? You go and tell him, one person. And then if he doesn't listen, you take it to two. And then if he doesn't listen, you take it to the whole church. And if he doesn't listen to the church, what do you do? <coughs> treat him like a treat him like a pagan or a tax collector. Which is what? Does Jesus treat pagans and tax collectors? Jesus loves them. So even if somebody has to be put out of the church, we still love them. But we don't love their practices. So there we go. There's some encouragement. And I'm going to leave major port and um, 
it was a huge port in early times. But now, the sea is eight miles from Ephesus. The whole of the estuary has silted up. So it can't be used as a port anymore. South used to be a major road. So um, this mud has silted gradually and gradually up to Ephesus, the port. And in the same way, they have gradually lost their love for Jesus. They may not have noticed it happening, but they need to be reminded of this creeping drift. Remember their first love to repent. And if they do that, the appraisal ends with a promise. You will have the right to eat. It is there in the end in the new city, in the new Jerusalem. So if you do repent and love, you have the leave you to think about that for a few moments as we just wait quietly and uh, then we're going to sing a song of response.